Good morning, guys. How's everyone doing? Right, we're going to join in an age-old tradition in which I'm going to say, he is risen, and you're going to reply, he is risen indeed. Okay, so, he is risen? He is risen indeed. You're almost churchy enough. Let's try that one more time. He is risen? He is risen indeed. Awesome. Happy Easter, man. It's so good to be here, and especially on Easter. What a special, incredible day. I was just uh, struck as we were singing that song, just how he loves us and how true that is on a day like today. So we got a lot going on this morning. As you can see, there are things taped to the ground. My notes are taped to the ground, so you're in good hands. Uh, we have Bobby painting. We have Omid, I guess, is going to stay at the piano. You know. Uh, and then over here, finally, we have communion. So this is a little taste of what's to come this morning. We are going to start at the ground, and then we're going to move to the struggle and then we're going to move to freedom. And really, I'm just following Bobby as she paints. So hopefully, we'll get this in sync. This is the first time we've done this. Um, <laughs> but all of that is going to be done through the metaphor of the butterfly. And so uh, that's very ambitious. We've got a lot to cover. And so I would really like to pray so that I don't mess this up. Can we all pray together? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, I'm just so, so grateful for what this day means. What we're going to talk about and unpack this morning is what this day means is the death of any kind of fear or anxiety or worry that we could possibly have because you have defeated death. And if death has been defeated, then what is left to fear? So, Lord, uh, I just pray over this space. I pray that you'd move. I pray that we would um, understand the Easter story in a different light, a way that maybe we haven't thought about it before. And maybe we understand that this is literally the beginning of the story. We're not celebrating just some event that happened 2,000 years ago. We're celebrating the ongoing resurrection because you are making all things new. Amen. All right. Um, so uh, I found that there are three... No, before I do that, actually, let me uh, unpack what we're going to do after this because uh, the announcements made it sound like we we're going to have a barbecue right outside here. Sorry, that's not happening. <laughs> uh, we are having a barbecue, and all of you, all, I don't even know how many people are here. There's no way you're all fitting in the house, but you should all come. We're uh, throwing it at my apartment, my one-bedroom apartment. So, <laughs> welcome! Uh, but seriously, you are really all invited, and we actually probably bought enough food to feed all of you, and we'll just funnel it in. Uh, there's no fire code regulation as far as I'm concerned. So we'll just like keep it coming uh, and going, but you're all invited. Come find me for my address. Come find Chelsea. Uh, you can ask Bobby here, you can ask Omid, um, you can caravan uh, or carpool over there. But seriously, we have way too much food, so please come. Even if you have other plans, stop by for a beverage or a, or a burger that Sean or Sean, you up there? Yep. There he is. Our master barbecue will be uh, preparing. So uh, please come and, and, and do that with him. Um, but after the service, we do have a time that we want to linger. And the whole idea of Easter is that it is a celebration. If there's one day out of the year the Christians are allowed to party, it's Easter, right? So what we're going to do is make that section just as holy as what's going on in here. Because a celebration is where we join closer in community. It's where we get to know each other. It's how we get to grow. And so after this, immediately following, Omid is going to lead us all into here. And there's going to be mimosas. There's going to be an egg hunt for the little ones. And we can watch them all gleefully uh, run on concrete, chasing tiny plastic eggs, which could end badly. Uh, <laughs> but we'll all watch the Easter egg hunt. We're going to hang together. Um, and then after that, at 1 PM, we'll have the barbecue at our place. And you are all welcome. So, most churches are throwing like seven Easter services. We're throwing three Easter services, and this is one of them, that's one of them, and our barbecue is one of them, because we truly believe that this day, this celebration, this party, is what it's all 
about. And this is the biggest day of our year. And to do that, I'm going to kind of unpack how Jesus liked to party. I know that's a very interesting um, statement. But Jesus, literally, first miracle, water to wine, 180 gallons of wine, actually, to keep the party going. Any parable that Jesus mentions, most of them have to do with some sort of a party setting, people gathering together, celebrating something. There's a parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son one is crazy. This one's about a son who comes up to his dad and says, hey, dad, I kind of wish that you were dead, so give me my inheritance, and I'm going to go out and squander it on wild living. He goes and squanders it in wild living, wastes all his money, gets to rock bottom, comes back to his dad and says, dad, I just, like, maybe I could be hired as a servant. Before he can even utter those words out of his mouth, his dad is running towards him, slaps a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, and says, you are my son, and you were dead, and now you're alive. And then they throw a huge party. That is what Easter is all about. Easter is all about what was dead is now alive. Our hopes, our dreams, our anxieties, our worries, all of that mixed into one resurrection. Easter means we are alive. And so that is worth partying over. Uh, So this won't be a normal Easter sermon. The story of Easter is that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again. And I'm sure that you guys have heard that story. If you haven't heard that story, I'd love to have coffee with you. <laughs> uh, but if, you, if you've been in a church before or if you've kind of been just in, like, you know, culture, you've probably heard the story of this Christ guy who comes down, who dies for our sins, and then rises again. What I want to unpack is the aftermath of that story. Because like it or not, believe it or not, we're all stuck in the aftermath of this story. This story has shaped cultures. It shaped nations for good and for really, really bad. People have abused this story. They haven't used it as a celebration. They've used it as a way to exclude people rather than include people. And so today, what I would like to do is take the story back. And I want to tell the story, but I want to tell exactly where we are right now. Because if you were to go to like a birthday party, say you went to um, your buddy Mark's birthday, uh, it, chances are if you're sitting down at the table having some birthday cake, you know, chatting with people, you're not talking about the day that Mark was born. You're not talking about the moment that Mark left his mother's womb, right? That would be kind of strange. Like, remember that day? Like, no, you're not talking about that. You're kind of talking about what's going on in your life. Maybe you're talking about Mark and what he's done in your life. Like, I know this guy, Mark. You got like, to meet this guy, Mark. Like, like I, I hung with him last week. He did this for me. He's, he's watched my kids. Like, this is the kind of stuff that you would be talking about because you would understand that at the party, you're talking about what's going on at the here and the now level. And so that's what I want to do with us this morning. I want to talk about what's going on right here, right now, because of this Easter story. And to do that, we've set up this journey of the ground, which is Friday, the struggle, which is Saturday, and freedom, which is Sunday. The ground, which is what Bobby is painting right now, the caterpillar who's grounded with its little tiny adorable feet. And then we're going to go to the struggle, which is the cocoon, which you literally have to break yourself out of. And then finally, we're going to arrive at freedom. And freedom has been pre-painted for us, and we lost one, but freedom is there. (laughs) And that's what we're going to be focusing on. So let me start right here at the ground, right here at the beginning. At the beginning of the entire Jesus story, uh, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the Gospel we're going to be really hunkering down in today, uh, there's this crazy thing uh, called a genealogy that starts it out. So we're going to get nerdy right off the bat. Genealogy. Everyone say genealogy with me. Genealogy. So I'm just going to flip through these because uh, there's so many names. So Sean, if we could just kind of, yep, on to the next, on to the next. 
I'm going to just keep that going as it goes. This is how the author of Matthew decided to start his grand Jesus story, and it's a wonder that anyone made it past these names. There are pages, <laughs> pages of these names. And it just, it causes you to wonder, and oftentimes we just kind of skip it, we get it. We're like, okay, Jacob, Joseph, Joseph, like, it's, all right, we get the point, let's move down to the Christmas story, uh, which is right below this. But this list of names would have been vitally, vitally important to the Jewish community, to the ancient reader at this time. When they look at this, they don't see just a list of names. What they see is their history. What they see is their culture lined up for them. And what this is saying to the reader at this time is, I'm showing you a story that began way, way back here, and now we've arrived here. You're in good hands, because I see where you have come from, and now we're going to go further. There's this new Jesus, this Emmanuel, God with us on the scene, and we're going to see what he does in light of this genealogy. So genealogy is a very interesting word, too, because it comes from the Greek word genesis, which If you have ever opened a Bible, that's the first book in the Bible, genealogy, Genesis. So it means beginning or origin story. Genealogy, when we trace all of this back, we're looking at the origin story of the Hebrew nation. And when we go to Genesis, we're looking at the origin story of our story, of humanity, of creation, of everything. And so what the reader is doing is he's calling back to this crazy time in history and saying, like, I see where where you came from, see where we are right now. And to see where we're going. And the Bible is crazy like this. It's constantly cross-referencing itself. It's hearkening back. It's calling back to the beginning. And it's going ahead and foreshadowing the future. Genesis kind of foreshadows the entire story. It begins in a garden, right? And then, and then because somebody ate a piece of fruit, we had to leave the garden. That one's a tough one. We'll do a sermon on that later. But uh, <laughs> we have to leave this garden. We start in a garden. It's all foreshadowing, right? We're, we're looking at the story moving ahead. And so for the reader, when they see genealogy, they're going to think Genesis. They're going to think, oh, the first book of the Bible. And then they're going to go, where are we? And what does this mean? And it was that device, that, that thing that the Bible does, where it uh, throws backwards and forwards all at the same time, that I tried to find desperately over the last couple weeks. I was trying to find a way to name it. Like, what does that mean when the Bible like calls back to something that's happened before to kind of just let you know hey, I got you in this. It's like the author saying, like, hey, I know the whole story, and I'm a good writer, so pay attention to what's going to happen next. And I searched relentlessly for a name for this device, and I couldn't find it. I emailed seminary professors. I Googled, which, you know, you probably should do that first. I emailed seminary professors. I Googled. I even called my dad. I did everything I could to try and find out what this was. And when I would describe this to someone, I was like, what? You know, you know that thing where the Bible kind of goes for it? It would be like a page and a half email and be like, this is, they're never going to read this whole thing. <laughs> uh, but I couldn't name it with anything theologically. Like I couldn't find like a good solid name for it. Uh, so I looked elsewhere. And it wasn't until I remembered my old improv days. That's right. Uh, I had an improv troupe in high school, which is a nerdy way of saying they opened the gym for us and we all got to walk in. But... Uh, <laughs> There's this device in, in comedy and in improv and kind of in like all performance art where uh, it's called the callback. So essentially, if I say, um, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, that statement isn't funny. It means nothing to you right now, and it, it doesn't, like, it's, it's neither here nor there. So why am I saying it? But if I continue to say that statement, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, and I do a couple lines, and I get a little bit ahead, and then I hearken back to that, and then I keep hearkening back to that, and I keep hearkening back to that, it soon becomes so ridiculous that it becomes funny. And really, the reason that it becomes funny is because you understand that I understand that it isn't funny. 
you understand that this is just such a ridiculous phrase, but you also understand that like, this performer that's in front of me, this person that's talking, I'm in good hands with this person because they understand the rhythms of storytelling. Right? They understand what's going to get me because they're harkening back and they're calling back. So the Bible constantly does this callback thing. And it's this genealogy, which is like one of the ultimate callbacks to say, like, guys, I see the whole story. So right from the beginning of the Jesus story, we know we're in good hands. So we should probably pay attention. I once came up with the greatest callback of all time. Um, it's not, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Uh, but it is pretty good. It's, I, I used to be the youth pastor for the Kardashians. So let's just let that sit for one second. Um, <laughs> so we've only just begun. Uh, but it was a very strange time in my life and also a really awesome time in my life. I met my wife at the church that uh, we were going to there. And uh, we just, we led this youth group in their home for a, a couple of years. And um, one of the weeks, uh, they're always like, so like if they Instagram something or Snapchat something, they'll get something for free. It's like this beautiful, awesome system of life that I wish I could get on. But so if they just like, if they would take a picture of something, they post it on the internet, that company would kind of like give them a bunch of that product for free or pay them to do that. Uh, and so there are always these like kind of toys coming through in and out of the house. Um, but one of my favorites was in the garage. So you go into their garage and they had three Segways. And this is like 2009, 2010, and Segways were... They were around, but like you never saw a Segway. I mean, like you're like, what is this thing? Uh, and so Kylie, the younger daughter, kind of was like, "Have you ever ridden one?" And I was like, "No, can I?" And so we get on the Segway, <laughs> and I'm riding the Segway around the Kardashians' home, and it dawns on me: not only is my life very strange, but it dawns on me that I have the greatest idea ever. <laughs> so. I never asked anything of this family. I never wanted to be on the show. In fact, I vehemently was like, no, please don't. Like, don't put this youth group in anything, even though the like, whole house is dressed like a set and they can start filming at any time. It's the strangest phenomenon in the world. Uh, but as I'm on the Segway, I, I, I approach Kylie with this idea and I say, okay, it doesn't have to be obvious at all. In fact, it's better if it's not. Just once an episode, every single episode, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, I will ride this Segway far off in the distance. Just sort of like... <laughs> And each and every episode, people begin to catch on. They're like, have you seen that? There's this guy that rolls through every single episode. And I would become the stuff of internet legend. Now, they didn't go for it. So I am left with, uh, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, which by the end of this will be funny. <laughs> or at least it'll be meaningful. So, uh, but anyway, it wasn't just that profound idea that I got at this youth group. I also uh, really experienced something really crazy. That's something I've still been wrestling with, um, and it comes down to this question. So I decided one Wednesday night that we would do a Q&A. And so I got all of the uh, high school, middle school students to take a little piece of paper, write down a question, we're gonna throw it in a hat, and basically like, we'll go around, we'll, we'll pull these questions out, and we'll all kind of work through them together. Like I'm, I'm like 20 years old at this point, I don't have the answers to these questions, but they're giving me these questions, and I'm like, we'll, we'll just talk through these together. Like, and there are questions about heaven and hell, and there are questions about, uh, dating and relationships and kind of like, you know, the stuff that you would expect a middle school student and a high school student to throw into a hat. But there was one question that really, really struck me. Uh, and it was Kylie's. And I said do this anonymously, but she autographed it. So that should tell you a lot about the current states <laughs> of the situation. Uh, and she wrote this down on a piece of paper. She wrote, she wrote this. Do you have that slide, Sean? It should be the... Uh, okay. She wrote, 
if I can't do this, I should lose my job. She wrote, uh, for God so loved the world <laughs> that he gave his only begotten son, that those who should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And she added this question mark at the end. So for those of us who have hung out in church a little while, this is like the most famous Bible verse there is. This is kind of like the condensed version of the whole story right here in one verse. And that's why it's kind of rattled off because it's this easy way of explaining this is what the Jesus story is all about. But in John's version, there's no question mark. But in the Holy Book of Kylie, there is a question mark. And so I really wanted to know why it's a deep and profound question for a 12-year-old to be asking. Basically, the whole gospel distilled down into one verse and then there's a question mark at the end of it. Like, what does this all mean? And she underlined that word, world. And in my conversations with her afterwards, uh, I kind of understood how she began to think about Christianity and Christians and God. Uh, and she began to recognize, and any other pastor in America will probably tell you, that that family looks a whole lot like that world underlined. And we kind of just throw around that word, like, don't be of the world. Like, you know, like the world is sinful, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, all that kind of stuff. And she lumped herself in with that world. And my heart just broke. I was like, man, that's going to take years and years to come back from. And so we moved from the ground to the struggle. And in the struggle, I mean, this is something that we, we all have, right? Maybe it's a question like Kylie's, a profound moment where you're just like, I don't know. The regular stuff just isn't cutting it anymore. The John 3.16, the easy answer is, I just, I don't know. I can't, I can't get my head around that anymore. It's not cutting it for me. And even worse, sometimes it's a question that we make up on our own, but oftentimes it's, it's way more profound. It's probably an illness or a loss of a loved one or a serious financial crisis, something that causes us to be on the ground where a caterpillar literally, a caterpillar's only job in this stage of a butterfly's life is to eat leaves. That's all it does. It just consumes. It consumes, consumes, and consumes until it just can't anymore. So it sort of like expands, 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 expands until it just can't anymore. And what happens is all of a sudden we realize all of this consuming, all of this, all of this eating of these leaves, and I'm just getting bigger, 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 and then crisis hits, and we realize, oh my goodness, struggle. And so at this point in the, in the caterpillar's life, becoming a butterfly, uh, this really gnarly thing happens, which is going to make you so thankful that you only had to go through puberty. Because what happens in this stage, in the cocoon, is that the caterpillar literally, it eats and eats and eats, it swells, it swells, it swells, and then it creates this like thing around it, like using its mucus and all the gross stuff, and it, it creates this cocoon, right? It's called chrysalis or chrysalis, and it, that sounds like a drug that could help you with allergies. But it's, it's like <laughs> this cocoon that's around it, and inside the cocoon, crazy stuff is happening the caterpillar literally starts dissolving its own body. Its own body eats itself. It's called metamorphosis. And metamorphosis means a complete change or transformation. What it means is that inside of there, all the organs inside of the caterpillar, all the tiny feet are being repurposed and removed around to create a completely different insect, the butterfly, to create these wings. I think the interesting part about the struggle, and, and especially about the caterpillar as it relates to that struggle, is that sometimes even though through all of that pain and all of that hurt and all of that metamorphosis, all of that changing up, the butterfly will then have to rip itself out of the cocoon. 
rip itself violently out of the cocoon. And the saddest part about the lifespan of a caterpillar is that most don't make it. So most will rip themselves out of this cocoon only to fall back to the ground. And that should be a huge, huge picture for us. We have to learn to struggle well. We have to learn to use and embrace struggle, as if struggle walks in the room and you sit it down and you go, OK, what can I learn from you? We have to learn to take struggle and actually have it mean something. Otherwise, we'll just go through that struggle, numbing the pain with whatever it is, a relationship or work or drugs or alcohol, whatever we can do to get our minds off of it. But when we get here and we're finally getting over here, we're just going to fall back to the ground if we don't embrace the struggle and really struggle well. The bulk of the Bible from Genesis to these Gospels is about struggle. We follow this nation called Israel, this nation that's chosen by God to live a different way. He's, this nation is supposed to show all people what God is like and the love of God through it, but they keep kind of going through these, like they'll, they'll start at the ground, right, and then they'll get to the struggle, and then God will free them, and you think they're going over here, but then they end up right back over here on the ground, and it's just this constant cycle of struggle, ground, struggle, ground, and we can't seem to get to freedom. And that's such a perfect picture of our lives. We struggle, and we think, oh my gosh, and just once I get out of this, or I can just distract myself from this, and we end up back on the ground. And the ground is great. There's plenty of leaves to eat, <laughs> plenty of food, but that's not freedom. The struggle kind of represents Saturday in this Easter story. So Friday is the death of Jesus, and then on Saturday, I want us to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. And these people that followed Jesus, and they didn't just follow him, they gave up their lives to really follow Jesus. They would walk around with him, quit their jobs, all their life behind, and for three years they followed this Jesus and they saw all of these incredible things. They saw him heal the blind, the sick, the leper. They saw him raise people from the dead. He preached about these insane things about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom was like this and this and this and this and this, but now he's gone. And so where's this kingdom now? More than anything, it's a death of their dreams and identity. You have to think of this just in a really like, shallow way as a death of career, right? Like, what am I going to do with my life now? I just spent three years with this guy, with this Messiah, who I thought was going to overthrow this oppressive Roman Empire that we're sitting in, and he didn't. He died. It seems like Rome won. What am I going to do? And the best part of this story is that on Saturday, leading into Sunday, all the disciples uh, would have to sit because Saturday was Sabbath. So in the Jewish tradition, Sabbath means that you cannot do anything. You are ordered to literally not work, like nothing can be done. So there's nothing to distract them. After Friday, after that death, they have to sit in Saturday. And here's the really weird juxtaposition. They have to rest in struggle. They have to rest Sabbath in struggle, which means they would have to sit and let their minds stew on this and actually face this problem head on. There were no distractions to get their minds off of it. But some of them still don't struggle well. The two who do are actually the women who follow Jesus, and, and their names were Mary and Mary, Mary Magdalene and Mary. And, and it's, such a, it's such an interesting text in the Bible, and we kind of miss it. We kind of brush past it, because right after, you know, we see an angel, and then we see Jesus. So it's like, those are kind of the, the, the fireworks and the big flashy stuff. But 
the fact that it was the women that went to the tomb, the fact that it was them, is, is hugely, hugely, hugely significant in an ancient culture. Because it was the women in that time period who were considered not even men, like not even, like, like they, they, were, they weren't equal. And they were the ones who go into the tomb to face the problem head on. They're going to clean Jesus' body. They're going to prepare it completely for burial. And to do that, they would have to literally step into the tomb. Talk about stepping into the struggle and embracing it. What can I learn from you? You've got to like literally stare at your hopes and your dreams and your future and what you thought was going to be the savior of the world and you have to prepare it for its complete and utter death. These are the ones that struggled well. And because of that, let's read this, this text together, uh, Jesus is revealed and they're able to take that in. So let's read this. This gets a little lengthy, but um, here we go. After the Sabbath, uh, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that image of just like, and then he just kind of casually sits on it. Um, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. This is where stuff gets interesting. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then quickly and go tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And this happens a couple uh, verses Later, uh, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. What a casual greeting for a crazy, crazy interaction. <laughs> Greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why does that keep coming up? Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Galilee, remember that one too. Do not be afraid. Galilee. There they will see me. And this is a couple verses later uh, after we deal with an interaction with the guards. This is where the 11 disciples come in. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Uh, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I love this. Can we go back to that last slide, the... Just the one before it, right. Okay, so it says, when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. So you've got the disciples who've been following this Jesus guy around for years, and they've seen him do miraculous things and incredible, like, jaw-dropping stunts in terms of nature and all this stuff, including the fact that they're literally staring the guy that they thought was dead right in the face. He's literally risen from the dead right in front of them, and still, they look at him and they go, ah, not for me. Some still doubted. This is what I love about Christianity. Christianity doesn't try and sell itself. That's like the most crap PR in the entire world. Like he's staring at Jesus and he's still, some of them are like, ah, no, I can't. I can't get into it. This isn't for me. Some of them didn't struggle well. It was the Marys that were so easy. It was so second nature for them to click into the fact that Jesus was in front of them. Their reaction was worship. And for the ones who didn't struggle where their reaction was doubt. I'm like, yeah, not for me. So some were able to find this Sunday, this freedom aspect, and some still hit the ground. 
So we're going to go back to the callback for a minute. And this is where things are going to get real nerdy, but I have you. You're stuck, and it's very loud to come down from these chairs. So <laughs> we're going to go into this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to unpack for you the reason that this Bible, this, this, especially this gospel, is so expertly written. Like, take all of it aside. We have to just, just ponder, how the heck did they come up with this? Because there are so many brilliant callbacks in here, and so many brilliant back and forth, back and forth, that you, it just makes your head spin after a while. So uh, the first one is a garden, right? This image of a garden. When Jesus is laid to death after he's crucified, he is buried in a garden, which is very ironic because if you think about a garden, a garden is a place where someone would plant a seed in the ground and that seed would have to die to then spring up new life. So Jesus is being planted in a garden and rises again in a garden. The Bible begins in a garden, and now this gospel story has it ending in a garden. Even on top of that, Mary, in the book of John, is crying so hard when she reaches the tomb. She's just weeping so, so passionately that when she looks up, she can't even see who's talking to her, and she mistakes Jesus as the gardener. So we have the beginning of the Bible that begins in a garden, and then we have Jesus coming back to life in the garden, and then on top of that, we have a physical place going into the person of Jesus, so now we have a gardener. Come on. That's only one. There are two left. We're still going. So number two is Galilee. Remember I said to remember Galilee. He says, go ahead of me to Galilee, or I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. Meet me there. Why would Jesus call them to meet him in Galilee? That doesn't make any sense, because Galilee is a long ways away, and even more than that, in the disciples' mind, they're going, no, 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 that's where we began. Because you see, it was Galilee that Jesus called all of his disciples off of that fishing boat. It was Galilee that this mission and this ministry of Jesus started. And it was Galilee that he gave this sermon on a mountain that became his most famous sermon. A sermon about blessed are the poor and the meek and, and, and these groups of people that can now be stoked because this new reality is available. This kingdom is available. Jesus is real, and now you can be thrilled because you're no longer going to be the meek and the oppressed. You have a savior, right? So the, all of this, we have the beginning in the garden. We have it ending in the garden. We have it beginning in Galilee. We have it ending in Galilee. It's enough to make your head want to spin. There's still one more. So the last line of the entire scripture uh, is, surely I am with you till the end of the age. We actually, we have that whole scripture, don't we? Uh, no? Okay, cool. Um, at the very end of the Bible, very last passage in Matthew, uh, Jesus goes to his followers and he says, look, and note they're on a mountain in Galilee, so that would, the disciples would be like, oh, goodness, this is where he preached that other sermon, like, and now this sermon is lining up. So anyway, they're on a mountain in Galilee, and Jesus says, go out, right? Go out into all nations, into all the earth, and proclaim this good news that the kingdom of God is here, and surely I am with you to the end of the age. And this is where we're going to hearken back to the beginning of our sermon and look at that genealogy, because that genealogy ends with a name that's new. The last name in that genealogy is Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us, the end of the genealogy the beginning of this book of Matthew, and now at the end, we have surely I am with you to the end of the age. To the reader who's reading this all the way through, they're going to go, oh my gosh, he just referenced the genealogy. 
And if he referenced the genealogy, he referenced Genesis. And all that means is Jesus is giving a wink to us, saying, like, I have been with you this whole, from Genesis to the end of Matthew, I have been here. And every story that you have of struggle and the ground, everything was always pointing to freedom. You have nothing more to fear. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That phrase just keeps coming up in Scripture. In fact, I just I find it so interesting that we're, we're still caught up in things like worry and anxiety in light of something like Easter. If we really hold this to be true, then there's no reason to fear anything anymore at all. It's a death of our anxieties. I, I find it just fascinating that people have a really hard time believing in a loving God, but putting their full faith in worry. Full faith, really easy, just latch on to that worry. Do not be afraid. There's a new genealogy. This is a new beginning. I'm with you till the end of the age. I'll end with this. Uh, That do not be afraid thing kept coming up, and so I wanted to see how many times it was in Scripture. And actually, someone had beat me to it, and it was one of my favorite people in the entire universe. His name is Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan uh, priest. And he said, do not be afraid is like one of the most common phrases in Scripture. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. It comes up so often. So somebody decided to count them up. And do not be afraid. Do not fear appears no more and no less than 365 times in Scripture. 365 times. Now, if the writer of this book doesn't have help, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) And that is what Easter is all about, Charlie Brown. Let's pray. (laughs) God, uh, I am just so, so, so grateful for Easter. I am grateful for this morning, and I am grateful for things like the ground and the struggle because they all point to freedom. We are free, and that's what this, this whole day represents. So I just pray over this space right now. I pray that just in the practical sense, we would just walk out of here with less fear, less worry, and more of you. Less fear, less worry, more of you. Amen.